Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Zoe Williams reacts to the news that Boris Johnson plans to nominate his father for a knighthood. What Oscar-nominated film The Whale says about how society truly views fat people. And how volunteering in a hospice changed Anna Tim's perspective on life and death. Now, Boris Johnson appears set to knight his father Stanley in his resignation honours list, a move that surprised even his loudest critics. Eva, ponders writer Zoe Williams, the former Prime Minister sees the UK as his own personal fiefdom. Or he has an ulterior motive. Read by Evelyn Miller. Ah, Boris Johnson. Such a safe pair of hands for any eventuality or crisis, national or international. But where you can really rely on him is in matters of discretion, judgment and not taking the biscuit. No, no, we're not idiots and that is not what any of us think. We know our way around this man and his traits. We know there are question marks over his truthfulness but never any doubt as to his self-interest and brass neck. So come on. The fact that the former Prime Minister has managed to surprise, even shock, anyone with his resignation honours list is surely cause for some grim admiration. How is it possible for Johnson to disappoint anyone when our expectations were already so low? It's like a superpower. His list was revealed by the Times, although it has yet to be officially confirmed, presumably because officials are still speechless. There are four sitting MPs on it, which, being unprecedented, raises a few questions about the long game. Is the plan that they sit in the Lords and the Commons, just for the thrill of upturning the constitutional matrix? Or will they step down from their elected positions, so that someone else. Maybe some 
charming, floppy, blonde rascal can stand in one of their seats should his own start to look dicey. As bizarre as it is to be asking those questions at all, the most pressing is, of course, what on earth is Stanley Johnson doing on this list? He stands in the shadow of two accusations that he denies of inappropriate touching. One from Caroline Noakes, the chair of the Women and Equalities Committee. It is a matter of public record that he hospitalised his wife in a domestic violence incident in the 70s. It's not a lovely CV. It doesn't scream, honour me, underlings, for my distinguished and upstanding performance. But surely more salient to the case for words such as sordid is the fact that he is Johnson's father. Joe Johnson, one brother, has already been handed a peerage, along with friends or allies or tennis chums or whatever the hell you want to call them. Yevgeny Lebedev and Zach Goldsmith. You have to feel for Leo, the other brother. When's he going to get his beak wet? What terrible feud lies between the two men to warrant his exclusion? When you're handing out peerages like wedding invitations, your blood relatives plus anyone who might give you a nice present, leaving out any family member seems a little pointed. To disappear down the rabbit hole of the Johnson family's internal emotional dynamics would be to accord them too much respect and national importance. One of the many upsides of Boris Johnson's demise was that we'd no longer have to care which designer Carrie was wearing or what she thought of badgers. It would be a shame, now, to be sifting through the wreckage of the Second Chamber's reputation, looking for clues as to whether this clan will vote en bloc or not. The whole thing is so loudly disreputable that I suspect an ulterior motive. Boris Johnson must suspect that some of his kites will not fly, that the Honours Committee will be bound by propriety to reject at least some of his harebrained suggestions. He may have included his father as low-hanging fruit for rejection, so that Paul Dacre and Nadine Dorries can slip through. The alternative is that he really believes that the UK and all its offices are just fiefdoms waiting for their rightful overlords, and what could be righter than all of those lords coming from his very own family. Again, this was meant to be our prize when he left office, that we'd no longer have to anticipate or care where his lavish egocentricity would drive him next. Instead, we're left with our hopes pinned on bashful committees and a limp prime minister, the political equivalent of the Maginot line to block an army of cronies. That was I thought my opinion of Boris Johnson couldn't be lower. Then he nominated his father for a knighthood by Zoe Williams. Read by Evelyn Miller. Now, the gushing hype around Darren Aronofsky's The Whale must mean it's great, right? Wrong, says comedian and activist Lindy West. It is a shallow and stigmatising reflection of thin people's assumptions about fat bodies. Read by Sue Ann Braun. I hadn't planned on engaging with the whale. 
In fact, one of my fat friends and I joked extensively about how much we were not, under any circumstances, going to shine our light on the whale. No disrespect to the fat riders who chose to do so. Why would we? There is nothing new in it. As much as its director Darren Aronofsky believes that he has made a novel masterpiece of fat humanity, every bit of the whale is old. However, I changed my mind about watching the whale when another friend, a thin one so you can take him seriously, texted me, fresh out of a pre-release screening, that it was one of the worst, stupidest movies he'd seen in years. Well, now I was intrigued. The hype around the whale, in particular Brendan Fraser's Oscar-nominated performance, had been so self-serious, so high-minded, I'd assumed it was a well-made art film whose creators just happened to have chosen a subject matter they likely weren't equipped to handle. But to find out it was simply bad? The thought of gilded Academy voters weeping over a video of Fraser in a fat suit choking on a meatball sub gave me a strange pleasure. The joke, suddenly, was on them. Delicious as a Cheeto sandwich sprayed with ranch dressing, a meal that the whale's protagonist eats while crying. Standing ovation! LOL, you idiots. I have been writing about fat, begging for my humanity to be seen for a long time. I might tell you, with reservations, that we've made some progress in my time. Smaller fat people have a few more clothing options. Weight Watchers has rebranded to pretend it isn't a diet program. High fashion designers will sometimes send a token fat model down the runway, even if they don't sell garments in her size, while mid-market brands feature a slightly more realistic range of models. It is now trendy on Instagram to suck the fat out of your waist and tummy and spray it inside of your butt and thighs to make them a little fatter, although I hear heroin chic is also coming back, as if it ever left. I personally was allowed to make three seasons of a television show in which a fat woman leaves the house and has many friends and lovers and is not particularly depressed. That's something, isn't it? The structural oppression of fat people, substandard medical care, lower salaries, exclusion from public life, remains unchanged. But hey, at least it's fashionable to have a huge ass now, and the thin people are a little nicer to our faces. But how do they talk about us when we're not around? The whale, I fear, holds the answer. After watching the whale, observing its reverent reception at the Venice Film Festival and beyond, and following Aronofsky's ongoing press tour, in which he repeatedly insists that his film is in service to fat people, generously humanizing us, I have to say, wow. Ha ha. Okay, no. Maybe it's unfair to use one independent film as the barometer for an entire society's attitude toward fat people. Maybe it's a straw man argument to accuse one fat character of being a stand-in for all fat people. But as a professional fat person, I can tell you that people in general are incapable of seeing any fat person as an individual. And as a professional film critic, I can tell you that if the whale didn't reflect and validate society's real opinion of fat people, there's no way society would like the whale this much. There's very little entertainment in it. It is not fun, or funny, 
or sweet or deep or beautifully written or illuminating. It sucks to watch, and it is very, very silly. No, people respond positively to the whale because it confirms their biases about what fat people are like, gross, sad, and why fat people are fat, trauma, munchies, and allows them to feel benevolent yet superior. It's a basic dopamine hit, reifying thin people's place at the top of the social hierarchy. Look at me, Mom. I'm doing empathy on the big greasy monsters. Thin people hate us so much that this is what it looks like when they're trying to like us. Charlie is a 600-pound gay man who hides in his apartment and violently binge eats because he's depressed that the love of his life, Alan, died by suicide. Before jumping off a bridge, Alan starved himself nearly to death. And they say fat people are clumsy and heavy-handed. When we first meet Charlie, he is sinking into his rotting couch, surrounded by garbage and what looks like a 32-ounce hydro flask of mayonnaise, masturbating to pornography. He climaxes, triggering some sort of cardiac event, which prompts him to slurp his wet hand out of his sweatpants with a pop like a cork and, squealing, beat at his chest in a desperate effort to breathe. Or as I like to call it, Wednesday. Aronofsky told the Los Angeles Times, What I really love about cinema is that it is this great exercise in empathy and that you can watch a movie about any person in the world and if it's an honest, truthful portrayal, you will be brought into their life, into their circumstance. Honest according to whom? Truthful to what standard? The whale is not a real fat person telling their own raw story with all the complexities and contradictions of lived experience. Charlie is a fictional character created by a thin person, a fantasy of fat squalor, a confirmation that we do this to ourselves, that we gorge buckets of chicken like mindless beasts, that we never see the world, never let the sun warm our bodies, never step into the sea, never make art, never feel human touch, never truly live. Portrayals like this steal from us in two directions. We are denied both the freedom to enjoy food and to have complicated relationships with it. I suppose my criticism boils down to this. A fat person, even one with a life identical to Charlie's, could never have made the whale. It is fundamentally not of us, and therefore incurably untrue. A recent profile in Playbill mentioned that playwright and screenwriter Samuel D. Hunter's own struggle, self-medicating his depression with food, influenced Charlie's long, passive culinary suicide. Hunter is not fat. He is a thin person with baggage around food and body, an assuredly painful state that afflicts us all, but does not offer meaningful insight into life, and such lives exist at 600 pounds. In a New York Times interview from 2012, Hunter said, For me, the play is fundamentally a story about a father trying to reconnect with his daughter. The weight is an element of the storytelling, in the same way that the play has a unit set or five characters. Charlie did not need to be fat, or as Hunter put it, constructing his own fleshy coffin to tell the story. Charlie's fatness is a tool used to evoke in thin audiences the same feelings that fat people seem to evoke in Hunter and Aronofsky. Horror, disgust, distance, alienation. 
By the end, Hunter says, Charlie becomes an unlikely vehicle for the audience's empathy. Unlikely? Why? Is he a serial killer? A mafioso? What a thing to say. In a naked PR maneuver to undercut exactly these objections, Aronofsky and Fraser have both breathlessly touted the production's partnership with the Obesity Action Coalition, a nonprofit that says it aims to elevate and empower those affected by obesity through education, advocacy, and support. Spend a few minutes on the OAC's website, and you will find a thunderous list of pharmaceutical giants and bariatric surgery centers. These are people who want us to pay them to make us disappear. The old guard, the old way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In one scene, intended, I think, to demonstrate Charlie's jolly self-awareness and good attitude, his friend, Liz, jokes that she's going to stab him to death if he doesn't stop saying I'm sorry all the time. Charlie responds, Go ahead. What's it going to do? My internal organs are two feet in at least. This is indistinguishable from the kind of things that thin people and fat people trapped in the cycle of penance say about me in comment sections and internet forums where they fantasize about my well-deserved death. In The Whale, it's a joke written by one thin man for another thin man in a fat suit to deliver under the direction of a third thin man. And then they all get an award. That's not how gallows humor works, my brothers. Even the central metaphor, hammered to death via a subplot about a Moby Dick essay our protagonist's daughter wrote in eighth grade, doesn't work. Have the filmmakers actually read Moby Dick? Is the connection they're drawing between this story and Herman Melville's simply whale? If the protagonist, Charlie, is the whale, then who is his Ahab? Society? Or is Charlie Ahab and his Moby Dick is pizza? More importantly, who reads Moby Dick in eighth grade? At one of the film's emotional peaks, Charlie slobbers that he hopes there isn't an afterlife so that his ex-boyfriend can't look down from heaven and see how fat he's gotten, see the mold between his skin folds and the infected ulcer on his anus. And I'm supposed to say what? Thank you? For this? Representation matters? I'd rather slap four pieces of pizza together in a big stack, dip it in grape jelly, and cram it down my pelican gullet while the score screeches a downmarket Carmina Burana until I drop dead. That's what I was planning to do tonight, anyway. To the filmmakers, you are not on the gallows with us. You are the hangman. You are not noble, long-suffering Liz trying to save Charlie, or Charlie's inexplicable, glowing benevolence in an unjust world. You are the dirty apartment closing in. Fat people are already trapped, suffocating, inside the stories the rest of you tell yourselves about us. We have plenty of your stories. What we don't have is the space to forge untainted relationships with food and our bodies, to speak honestly about our lives without being abused, to explore our full potential without having it stolen by a world that thinks of us as Charlie, if it thinks of us at all. That was The Whale is Not a Masterpiece. It's a joyless, harmful fantasy of fat squalor by Lindy West. Read by Suan Braun. 
We'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The wait is over and we are back for series two of Pop Culture with me, Shantae Joseph. We'll dive into the biggest pop culture stories of the week again, from Meghan and Harry. And this is why sort of turning Harry and Meghan into polarising figures ticks a lot of boxes, because it just drives clicks. To Rihanna. Rihanna rocks up at about one. She just swans in like she's the most ordinary person in the world, just running a couple of minutes late. And of course, the chaos of my life. I meet someone, I show my friends, they're like, mm, yeah, it's okay. Four weeks later, I'm sliding down the wall crying. One week later, I message my friends, I met you guys. This is how I dated 11 people in one year. Join me every Thursday from the 16th of March, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. And finally, when writer Anna Timms volunteered at a hospice, she learned by helping patients in their final days not to fear illness and death. Here, she writes movingly on her experience and explains what dying reveals about what really matters. Read by Bryony Rule. My introduction to death came in a traffic jam. I turned on the radio and heard a woman describe her father's final days in a hospice. His end, she said, was a strangely warming memory because of the hospice volunteers who entered the pain of strangers and held their hands as they faced the unknown. In her grief, she explained, she'd encountered humanity at its best. I forgot my frustration at the static traffic as I listened. The prospect of a missed train and crowding deadlines was unimportant, seen through the lens of loss. It was an instant realisation that I wanted to be where life matters most, which is when it is ending. I wanted to be one of those hospice volunteers. My experience of death had been at a distance. I'd lost grandparents and cats. As a clergyman's wife, I'd attended funerals of parishioners, tidied tombstones in the churchyard and contemplated my mortality from the pews during Lent. I had never seen a body. I'm frightened of the raw grief of others, and I'm squeamish about blood. My volunteering roles have always been with children. I'm used to beginnings, not endings. I ignored my deadlines that morning. Instead, I googled hospices. A hospice in the next county was seeking a volunteer 
to write the life stories of patients in its day centre. This felt reassuringly familiar ground. I applied. Within a month, I was listening to strangers recounting their loves and their losses. Their trust took my breath away. So did the intimacy of hearing memories that had never been shared and regrets that had never been expressed. Each interview would start the same way, with an apology. The patients apologised for having led boring lives that were not worth recording. Then, as they rewound the years, I realised they were discovering for the first time that they were a pivotal part of a story, that they had made an imprint on the world. A life recounted can make sense in a way that life lived does not. I heard the anguish of a Second World War pilot haunted by the bombs he dropped on Germany. I recorded the childhood of a German woman who had grown up beneath those bombs. An ex-convict confided his years of alcohol addiction in the hope that his story of redemption might be shared to help others. I accompanied octogenarians through the hopes of their youth to the resignation of their ending. And, when each story was printed and handed over, those strangers felt almost as familiar to me as family. People were admitted to the day centre if they had less than two years to live. It was a cheerful space, full of light, cake and chatter. There was time for friendships to form and flourish. Death felt remote. Occasionally, I'd be summoned to the ward of rooms where patients were in their final weeks. It felt a hallowed place. Mysteries beyond my comprehension were unfolding behind the closed doors. Ashamed of my own health, I hovered at bedsides and marvelled as people rested their remaining shreds of energy to share their lives. One woman could barely speak and her memories were scrambled by a brain tumour. I suggested she rest. Let's crack on, she whispered. Her memoir was for her young children. Through her story, she hoped to live on. We only met the once. She died before she could get past her childhood. But that childhood lives with me as vividly as my own. I began to see life differently. Chores and routines I'd thought tedious have a sanctity on a deathbed. Everything I took for granted, the school run, the weekly shop, an unexpected soaking in a rainstorm, seemed a gift to those no longer able to experience it. The details the patients recalled of their past were so small, but so precious. I saw people differently too. Instead of anonymous faces of strangers in the street, I saw protagonists of untold stories, the quiet heroism of ordinary life. The day centre closed temporarily when Covid struck and most volunteers were stood down. I agonised over all the tales that would never be told. In spring 2021, an SOS came from the Cottage Hospice in East Sussex. They needed volunteers to work shifts with nursing staff. This was not familiar ground. It combined my fears of wounds and body fluids and unleashed emotion. I was uncertain that I could cope with the death of people I attended. Then... I realise that I will one day have to cope with the death of people I have loved. Perhaps to immerse yourself fully in life, you have to confront mortality. So, in fear, I signed up. 
The Cottage Hospice is offered free to families and paid for by fundraising. It was established by Hospice in the Weald in 2019 to be a home from home rather than a hospital for those who don't want to be parted by visiting hours and ward rules. Relatives move in with the patients and care for them with the support, if they want it, of nursing staff and visiting doctors. There are ensuite bedrooms with sofas and private verandas, a family kitchen stocked with food, guest rooms for visitors or carers who need a break, and stylish lounge areas. Patients can personalise their rooms, which overlook hills and meadows, and host guests in a free cafe. Some of them bring their pets. The idea is to remove some of the pressure on families so they can make the most of the time they have left. Celebrating life, dignifying death, is the philosophy. It feels more like a boutique hotel, and what struck me the first time I entered was the pervading peace. Not silence, although there is a great quiet, but a tranquility. It baffled me. Anguish beyond my imagining is endured in those rooms. Some patients were leading active lives until a recent diagnosis and arrive in shock. Some have suffered long illness and are resigned. Family caregivers know that when they leave, they will go home alone. Over the months, I think I've started to understand. The cottage is a pause, a bubble, and in that pause, families, in coming to terms with death, can make sense of their life together before the agonising step into the future. In the outside world, death is hidden, unmentionable. In the hospice, it's what unites all those there, and in being acknowledged, it is dignified. It can be a relief for relatives to talk openly about their fears and grief. It is an honour for staff and volunteers to be there to listen. I feel this place has wrapped its arms round me, a young wife told me, after terrifying weeks of waiting in hospitals. Instead of collecting memories, I found myself bathing patients, feeding them, talking to families, and occasionally helping the staff performing last offices for those who had died. To my surprise, I found death in the abstract more frightening than death personified in individuals who can squeeze your hand and share a joke, and who, while losing their life, radiate their humanity. It takes a special grace to accept dependence. In the outside world, we feel humbled by the status and success of others. In a hospice, I'm humbled by figures in the beds trustingly accepting the ministrations of a stranger and whispering, even when barely conscious, a thank you. Dignity is not what I thought it was. I was hot with embarrassment when I washed my first patient until I saw she was smiling at me. In her acceptance, she had dignity. In my fumbling confusion, I did not. Drugs manage the physical pain and some of the mental torment. They can't remove the dread of loss and the fear of the unknown. But most of those I met have arrived at the same acceptance. Dignity of spirit overcomes the indignity of helplessness. Small gestures, a wiped face, a plumped pillow, feel like tributes. They are all I can offer 
as they face what I can't fathom. My fears were dissolved by the calm of the nursing assistants. Many are young, but have learned more of life in that building than I have done in twice their years. Formal staging posts to friendship are bypassed, and staff, volunteers and families are plunged straight into a relational deep end. Some patients and carers want the release of a laugh. Some want to confess fears, share memories, or talk of anything but sickness. Some require silence. You have to try to intuit what they need without blundering. I live in terror of an ill-judged word, and in wonder at the power of a held hand. It's in the kitchen that the hospice's vision is enacted most powerfully. Caregivers from different families mingle at the table, preparing meals or making tea. We may never have met before, but sometimes the chatter is so lively, the vibe so domestic, that I feel we're in a house share. A patient's husband reminded me how to use the microwave each time I forgot, and we joked at my culinary incompetence. A pair of young siblings concocted a banquet for their dying father. They bought his favourite foods and a bottle of champagne. They decorated the trays with flowers and had hired a band he'd admired. He'd love to party, they said. At quieter times, that intimate domestic setting is where relatives let their guard down, confide their struggles and invite a hug. There's a connectedness in shared crisis that can make you feel more human. Life seems more real sometimes inside the hospice than it does back in the world of deadlines and small talk. You're supposed to leave their pain at the door when you clock off from a shift, but some people's pain comes home with you. The hard part is the absences when you clock on a week later. Families you grew close to are suddenly not there anymore, and you never got to say goodbye. Six months after I'd started at the cottage hospice, my father was taken ill. He died ten days later. His sickness was sudden, but the hospice had prepared me. I dread loss more keenly, perhaps, than I ever did, having witnessed families watch their lives fall apart, but death itself has seemed less frightening since I confronted it there. It was my encounters with patients and relatives that enabled me to accept my father's diagnosis without terror and to face his body on the bed. My hospice shifts haven't made my grief any less, but they've made it seem less isolating. Loss is the one certainty we all face, but in the outside world, it tends to be born out of sight and earshot. Accompanying relatives on part of that agonising journey has helped me come to terms with my own emotions and to root my personal bereavement in the wider human story. Hospice volunteering has changed my understanding of life and death. There are no happy endings in the conventional sense. The patients won't get better. One has to accept one can't save them. There is no counsel or comfort one can offer strangers facing the inevitable. That's been hard to learn. I like to fix things. I'm prone to impose advice. I'm discovering that it's essential to recognise that we can't control life in the way we assume. The existence we take for granted is as frail as dreams, and it can dissolve in a heartbeat. Sharing with families the most private moments at a deathbed is an inexpressible privilege. Social barriers break down. In that limbo, 
away from daily schedules, relationships are prioritised. In my head these days is a procession of faces of those I briefly knew. So many of them had craved more time. Now, when a new day breaks, I try to see it from their perspective and cherish the humdrum as a gift. And when I finish a hospice shift, I want to take back into the outside world that sense of life stripped back to its essentials, where what ultimately matters is love. That was What Being a Hospice Volunteer Taught Me About Death and Life by Anna Timms. Read by Bryony Rule. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Evelyn Miller, Suan Braun and Bryony Rawl and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 